Today's conversation is with Chris French. Chris is an anomalistic psychologist at Goldsmiths, the University of London. If you enjoyed this conversation with Chris, please take a second to hit that subscribe button below as it really, really helps. And thank you for watching. So Chris, first of all, could you explain what animalistic psychology is? I could give you a kind of, I'll I'll give you a kind of the um, less jokey definition first, which is basically it primarily focuses upon seeing if we can come up with non-paranormal explanations for ostensibly paranormal experiences and um, paranormal beliefs, related types of beliefs. Uh, See if we can come up with alternative explanations and then wherever possible, try and put those to the test. See if we can produce evidence that supports our our type of explanations. Uh, When I'm doing talks, I often just cut to the chase and say it's it's just the science of weird shit. I like that definition. Um, Okay, so as a child, were you you interested in, were you excited by the paranormal and and related stuff? I was always interested in it, but I mean, as a kid, I was absolutely terrified of ghosts. you know, I was I was one of those kids that needed a nightlight until kind of uh, quite quite late in childhood, really. Um, and uh, I was I was also interested in kind of things like UFOs and so on. I didn't find, I didn't for some reason didn't find aliens as scary as the idea of ghosts. Um, but it was really kind of I suppose like it wasn't a kind of overwhelming passion of mine. But I was yeah I was interested. I'd buy the occasional book, read books, watch things on TV and so on. Um, and I, even kind of going through kind of university, doing a, a psychology degree at Manchester, um, very little of this stuff was actually covered or mentioned at all. Um, so, I mean, I kind of maintained my belief until kind of well into young adulthood. So what changed when you, you know, started to become more sceptical and, and realise... Yeah, you didn't believe what you used well, to believe. That, again, it was... Uh, I've, I've told this story so many times. It's um, It was when I was doing my PhD. That was at Leicester University. And on a completely different... In a completely different area, it was um, kind of neuropsychology, uh, looking at hemisphere differences and using EEG and, and so on. So it was all very, very you know, proper proper science. Um, and uh, a friend of mine, another a member of staff there, recommended a book that he thought I might like. It was called parapsychology science or magic uh it was by a canadian social psychologist called james alcock um and i read the book and i did indeed (laughs) enjoy the book and i found it very very persuasive and it was the first skeptical treatment of all these kind of topics that i'd ever come across and i kind of realized from looking at the kind of references that that there was a skeptical literature out there if you knew where to look of course you know, even today, most books on the paranormal are very uncritical and very kind of pro-paranormal. But there is a sceptical literature out there. It's and a bit more readily available these days, thankfully. Um, so I started to subscribe to the Skeptical Inquirer, this American publication. Um, and uh, also there was a kind of British version, kind of a bit not, not quite as glossy. Um, I started subscribing to that. And it started off really then just my kind of sceptical interest as a hobby, just a kind of side interest. It wasn't something that I was incorporating into my kind of academic work in any, in any way. Um, 
Started at Goldsmiths in 1635. No, sorry, uh, 1935. Just felt like 1635. It was a long time ago. Um, and then I would do... I, I did a couple of lectures on all this stuff, the parapsychology and uh, pseudoscience, etc., etc., from a very sceptical perspective. Um, and basically, the students enjoyed it. You know, it went down well with the students. I enjoyed teaching it. It was a fun topic to teach. Uh, but even then, it was very much a kind of side interest. And I did the occasional student project in this kind of area, published the occasional paper, but it was a, it was quite a slow process. Um, Realised probably about 10 years after I started at Goldsmiths that I could put on a whole module on this stuff as a, as a final year option. And again, that went down well with the students. Whether they were believers or sceptics, you know, we had fun talking about this stuff. Um, and I was, you know, getting more and more into it. But one of the interesting things was that I was, uh, I felt that my interest in this stuff, certainly as a research area, was kind of tolerated but not encouraged by my head of department. You know, it wasn't seen as being very respectable. Um, and I was actually pretty much explicitly told that, you know, I could carry on doing the research in this area as long as I carried on with the more respectable research. Um, and for a long time I did that. And I wish in retrospect I hadn't. I wish I'd have ignored that advice and just um, focused on what I found the most interesting. Um, there was a kind of very much an attitude of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, kind of intellectual snobbishness or, you know, people kind of seen it as a, being a kind of Mickey Mouse kind of area. It wasn't really proper science, was it? I mean, why are you interested in this stuff? We all know that people aren't being abducted by aliens and that ghosts aren't real. Well, yeah, I, I happen to agree with that myself, but I always admit I might be wrong. You know, maybe there's some new evidence come along that might be change my mind. Um, and I don't think it's a very scientific attitude, but regardless of all that, there's no doubt at all that most people do believe in at least one paranormal claim, and lots of people believe in a hell of a lot of paranormal claims, and people claim to have had direct experience of the paranormal. So psych from a psychologist's point of view, there's something there that needs to be explained. I mean, you know, either some paranormal phenomena are genuinely beyond science, conventional scientific explanation. Um, and if that's the case, then, you know, that's amazing. And we ought to just get on with it and study it like we study any other aspect of the natural world. If it isn't the case, then all those kinds of experiences and beliefs are telling us something interesting about the way our minds work. So either way, it's worth taking them mm. seriously. Yeah, for sure. Um... Yeah, it seems odd there was this lack of respect because, like you say, if uh, these things aren't true, it's at least interesting why we think they're true. So, exactly. um, you mentioned this this other field of parapsychology. What's the difference between that and animalistic psychology? I think it's. I mean, it's, in practice, it's largely a matter of emphasis. I think that whereas, I mean, the, by calling myself an anomalistic psychologist, I guess I'm sending out signals that say I'm a skeptic. I, I'm interested in this stuff, but I don't believe in it. Um, and you shouldn't really have to do that, but. Uh, as I said, just my own experience of even being interested in this stuff from a sceptical perspective led me to have a lot more sympathy for people who would often prefer to go by the label parapsychology, parapsychologists, um, who actually do seriously entertain the idea that there might be some, uh, some of these phenomena might be genuine, you know. And I think there's a lot of sceptics that assume that there's yeah that there's no real evidence out there to support the idea of telepathy or precognition and so on and so forth. And that's just not true. There is evidence. 
It's a question of the quality of the evidence, how you interpret the evidence, whether there are any alternative explanations for the evidence and so on. And that's where the really interesting debate lies. But parapsychologists would tend to often focus at least on uh, attempting to actually prove that paranormal phenomena do exist. Um, anomalistic psychology, as I said, tends to take a more sceptical approach and say, well, let's start from the working hypothesis that doesn't exist and can we explain these kinds of claims and experiences in other ways. Um, but in practice, um, although most of the research that we've done over the years was from that rather more sceptical perspective, we've also directly tested paranormal claims on many, many occasions, um, in which case we're doing parapsychology. And many of the parapsychologists that I know, they spend a lot of their time directly testing paranormal claims, but certainly the well-informed ones are also aware of all the um, cognitive biases that the sceptics would use to explain everything, and they may dip a toe in the water occasionally and do experiments testing that approach as well. So it's a mix, but it's a more a matter of emphasis than anything else. Obviously, you're quite a sceptic yourself. Are there any particular claims um, that you're most, that have kind of made you question things the most? Yeah, I mean, I could, I could, I mean, I mean, I could kind of rank a number of kind of paranormal topics in terms of, you know, ones that I think are kind of totally implausible up to ones that, yeah, well, there might be something in that, and, and, and in terms of the kind of available evidence that's around. Um, so, you know, for example, I mean, in terms of the stuff that I've personally investigated, either myself directly or through PhD students that I've supervised, because I, I took on a couple of PhD students who were, over the years, who were total believers and were just kind of setting out to kind of prove that I was wrong, you know, um, but never produced any kind of compelling evidence to that effect, despite their best efforts. Um, but I've also kind of taken part in, in, in a few TV series and TV programmes, and one or two of those, there's been stuff that's um, made me kind of think, oh, well, that was, that was interesting. Something, yeah, that's intriguing. I've, I, kind of said, I kind of said before, I've got a kind of a mental box that's got a question mark on the side where I kind of put those kind of things. By and large, it's, it's amazing how little positive evidence in support of paranormal claims I've managed to personally be involved with. Now, there are other, there's other research done by other people, which, um, you know, just because I didn't do it doesn't necessarily mean I shouldn't kind of pay any attention to it. So there are certain areas where I suppose I remember kind of years and years ago reading kind of one of the last books that Carl Sagan wrote and he he identified three areas that he thought were worthy of being taken seriously even though he himself again was a skeptic like me um, but he thought that you know there's maybe something in them um, and in that case it was um, the idea that people might under conditions of um, sensory or perceptual deprivation going to a state where there was some evidence of a telepathy. He was talking about the, the so-called Gansfeld studies. Um, the idea that people can perhaps influence um, the output from random event generators very, very slightly, purely by the power of the mind. Um, and also um, kids who appear to remember past lives um, when there's no kind of other as he would say, obvious explanation. Now, in each of those cases, I think that there are reasons to be doubtful, 
But there's also, yeah, whether those reasons are the full explanation for what's going on or whether there is something more going on there, who knows? And I'm, I'm all in favour of uh, the parapsychologists carrying on, giving it their best shot to do good quality research, to, to you know, potentially prove mainstream science wrong. Because, I mean, science more generally is very, very sceptical. Psychologists in particular tend to be amongst the most sceptical. But as I said before, we could be wrong. We could be wrong. Yeah, as I say, yeah. So, so you end up taking a kind of personal position on this stuff that you, trying to survey the evidence from the kind of you know, the published literature, um, but also your own personal experience of it, and you come to some kind of judgment. And I've gone from being um, a believer in the paranormal to what I would now view when I first became a skeptic as a fairly kind of hardline skeptic back back towards the centre ground but I'm still very much definitely on this side if I had to bet my house on it I would bet against the existence of paranormal phenomena so as someone who is a skeptic and someone who knows a lot about why we maybe fall prey to to things that you know we believe as being paranormal do you yourself still fall prey to to things and have moments where you know before you are able to reflect and kind of rationally maybe find an alternative explanation where you think wow that is that is odd maybe you hear something you know how has this affected you like yourself yes the short answer is yes um i mean kind of one of the like a standard counter explanations non-paranormal explanations of ostensibly paranormal experiences is coincidence you know not obviously it's not always the explanation but um if someone uh, claims that they've had a dream and then something happened in real life a few days later that had an amazing striking correspondence one possibility is that their dream was some kind of paranormal peek into the future another possibility is that the match was just a coincidence you know and when you consider that about what eight billion i think of us on the planet and even if you just assume that everybody just dreams once per night that's every single night there are possibilities of some amazing matches occurring um you know now we're not surprised when people win the jackpot in lotteries and again you're dealing with the same kind of astronomical odds but we understand intuitively there were so many people buy tickets then you're bound to get a winner sometimes you know and it's exactly the same kind of principle that's at work there so you don't always have to be skeptical about those kind of claims maybe it's exactly as the person described it that's exactly the dream they had and that's exactly what happened a few days later um if someone claims that they can they have those kind of dreams on a regular basis then that would end up stretching the coincidence explanation a bit too far you know and, and some people claim that they have done that and we've done from investigations of those kind of people um but yeah, I mean, so I will still be very, very struck by, I love coincidences, you know, I'm fascinated by them. And when they happen to me, I'm, I'm going to be as blown away as anybody else. But I'd probably almost immediately think, yeah, but actually, yeah, you would expect that to happen every so often, wouldn't you? Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've occasionally had episodes of sleep paralysis where if I was a believer, I might have gone for a, a spooky supernatural uh, explanation. But I'm not. I know an awful lot about sleep paralysis, and uh, that would be the immediate go-to explanation for me, no matter how scary the experience had been. Um, so, yeah, overall, I'm not saying that I could never be... It's interesting, actually. There's a, 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 a fellow sceptic by the name of David Marks, Professor David Marks, who... Um, for many, many decades, was one of the most kind of vocal, in my opinion, vocal outspoken sceptics around, saying there's just 
no strong evidence for these kind of things, you know. And he put forward some very, very good critiques, you know. I, mean, I was a big fan of his work. But in his most recent book, I've not had the chance to read it every, every page. It looks to me that he seems to be arguing that although he doesn't think that we'll ever be able to prove the existence of paranormal phenomena in the laboratory, that it can, they can sometimes occur just in everyday life. Uh, and I think that's based on a very kind of profound experience that he had that he felt could not be explained just by coincidence and these other kind of factors. And that's kind of quite interesting, the notion that, you know, maybe maybe sometimes these phenomena are real, but you're never going to capture them in the lab. Um, if that's the case, well, you know, they are by definition then beyond the reach of science, you know. And if you're going to base your beliefs on scientific evidence, you're always going to be, you're always going to be dubious and sceptical. But it's logically possible, obviously. That's really interesting. I mean, you said a minute ago that you've kind of come back from being quite a hardcore sceptic. I think I've heard you say on a podcast that um, that maybe as opposed to someone like Richard Dawkins, who feels to, seems to be very irritated by these kind of things, your belief is that if, if a belief that someone has that is maybe not actually... Um, explained by truly paranormal phenomena as long as it doesn't harm anyone else you think it's fine for that person to have that belief and it wouldn't annoy you or, or something like that no i mean I, yeah. again i mean i i think you do need to be kind of quite sensitive when you're dealing with this topic sometimes especially when you're on on the topic about yeah, life after death i mean uh, a few years back uh, there used to be a lot of, you know they used to kind of like these topics on daytime tv you know, shows where they have a studio audience and blah, blah, blah. And I'd quite often find myself in a studio audience with lots and lots of lovely little old ladies who'd maybe all lost their husbands and all believed that they were saying, I wouldn't want to pour cold water on that. But I mean, I was there to be the sceptic. Mm. And so I would give my honest opinion that I personally do not believe in life after death. But if, it, if that those beliefs brought comfort to those people and they're not doing any harm with them, well, fine, you know, I suppose, I suppose that's one way in which I suppose I've changed from, you know, this in terms of that position that I don't, I don't see it as my mission to change everybody's mind on the paranormal. I'm interested in why people believe what they believe. I'm interested in the possibility of whether they're right or wrong to believe that stuff and what other alternative explanations there might be. But if people take comfort from believing stuff and it's not harming anybody else in any way, you can believe whatever the hell you like as far as I'm concerned, you know. I think that's a kind of basic humanist position, really. I mean, humanists would defend religious freedom. You know, you can you can believe in whatever gods you want to. It's only if it's... Uh, you know, the, the, the basic humanist position is that, you know, we, we, we tend not to believe in any of them. But um, if other people want to, then we would defend your right to do so. You don't get, you don't get persecuted for your religious beliefs, but you also shouldn't get any special favoritism or any special uh, advantages from your religious beliefs you know they they shouldn't have any any impact either way it's only when you get situations where you know i mean atheists are in, in some parts of the world as you'll be aware are kind of you know putting their lives in danger even by admitting to being atheists uh, and in other parts of the world you know you'll be in the same kind of danger of persecution on the basis of your religious beliefs and both of those things are wrong as far as i'm concerned are there any ways, though, that you think someone holding a belief in an aspect of the paranormal could be harmful for themselves, though, or for other people? Well, it could be. In some, I mean, it's almost like a kind of, you know, I mean, I mean, another area that we're interested in is a belief in conspiracies. And I suppose that's a kind of a really good illustration of the potential dangers, because we know that 
if you believe in conspiracy X, you're also very likely to believe in conspiracy Y. It's a you know it's a very good predictor, um, even if they're totally unrelated in terms of you know any kind of logical connection between them. Um, now the problem there might be, and again I think you can generalise this argument to kind of unfounded beliefs more generally, including in my mind paranormal beliefs, that um, if you start off just believing that the moon landings were faked, but eventually you end up as an anti-vaxxer, then, or even, you know, worse still, you know, QAnon believer storming the capital, you know, etc., etc., then that can have real impact. And it's once you start, I mean, because certainly with conspiracy beliefs, if you decide that you just cannot trust any mainstream institutions, you know, all scientists are lying, all mainstream media are feeding you lies, uh, the only people you can trust are kind of Alex Jones or whoever, you know, coming out with all this uh, conspiracy stuff, then that is a potential risk. Alternative and medicine, you know, if you decide that there's no harm in, in itself if you kind of happen to believe that crystals have some special form of energy that can, you know, de-stress you or detoxify you or any of this other stuff, you know. In, in and of itself, it's not harmful. But if you think, if you get a diagnosis of some serious illness and you think, no, I'll, I'll rely on crystals and homeopathy, well, yeah, there are dangers there. So, yeah, I would prefer people didn't believe in that stuff. I prefer everybody kind of you know, took the approach of trying to evaluate the evidence and come to, you know, obviously we all feel that we're right. We wouldn't believe, you, can, you don't believe things if you don't think in, by nature that they're right, obviously. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't personally believe uh, that in, I mean, alternative medicine is, is just kind of, uh, it's either never been proven or it's been proven to be ineffective, you know. But um, if people choose to spend their money on that stuff, again, I think at the end of the day, it's their choice. But I, yeah, I, I prefer people didn't buy into all this stuff. And I think it can be in certain situations... You can always think of ways in which these kinds of beliefs can kind of be exploited by people who want to take advantage. Yeah, um, I want because one thing I was going to ask you actually is let's take a specific example. So people who claim to have psychic abilities, what would you think roughly the kind of percentage split would be between those who you think are truly sincere, believe they have the ability, perhaps maybe actually don't, but they at least believe they're in communication with um with another kind of entity and those you know you think that are just kind of probably fraudulent and out there to make some money what do you think the kind of percentage split maybe there is i couldn't give you a percentage on it but i would say in my personal opinion which may or may not be right that the vast majority of people who claim to have that kind of gift genuinely believe it um uh i've kind of i've i'll give a plug now for my book that's coming out next year with the title of the science of weird shit um and in there, I do actually, you know, tongue in cheek, put forward French's first law and French's second law. And I think it's French's second law, which is that the the more high profile the psychic or medium is, the more likely they are to be deliberate frauds. Um, because basically the demands on those people to go on stage every night or to appear in front of the cameras um, are just, you know, uh, so much that they, they, they couldn't rely on just the kind of techniques that your average workaday psychic might use, which I, I believe personally is very often a kind of unintentional form of cold reading. I mean, uh, I, I don't know, you know for, for any of 
of your viewers that are listeners who don't know what cold reading is, it's a technique that can be used by deliberate con artists to convince complete strangers that you know all about them. Uh, and it can be very effective. I once passed myself off on Richard and Judy back in the day as a psychic. You know, I mean, they, they knew I wasn't, but the, the volunteers that I, the volunteers I had readings for, they, they were given the impression initially that I claimed to have psychic powers. And it can work very easily. It doesn't always work, but it can be really, really effective. Um, so, you know, when I was teaching my anomalistic psychology module at Goldsmiths, uh, there was part of me that kind of did feel I was doing kind of the students a service by training them all as kind of cold readers so that when they graduated and couldn't get jobs, you know, they've got something to fall back on. You know, the, the next generation of fake psychics will have all come through Goldsmiths, you know. But, uh, but no, seriously, I mean, it means, you know, by knowing about cold reading, you're much less likely to be taken in by it. But going back to what we're talking about, um, I think it's also possible very often that in these situations where there is somebody who honestly believes they've got a gift, they're, using, they're cashing in on a similar kind of uh, information exchange, but not being aware of the fact that that's what they're doing. And so, I mean, again, typically, I mean, I, I've often noticed that when I see somebody who I know is a cold reader, a self-confessed cold reader doing a reading, it's very often much, much more impressive than the reading that's done by somebody who thinks they've got genuine psychic ability, where, you know, they might get the occasional impressive hit, but a lot of it is just, you know, just all over the place, you know. Um, so, yeah, um, I think the vast majority of those people do genuinely believe they have a gift. I mean, we've touched upon kind of some, um, you know, an explanation of how psychics could, could do stuff with, with cold read. Maybe just briefly, if we think of a, a few other kind of typical... Um, supposedly paranormal encounters people have what are some explanations for why people actually feel like maybe they're seeing a ghost or seeing a ufo or something like that what are some yeah, cognitive things I mean, going on here that can explain bear in mind that i used to teach like a 22 hour course on this stuff and we're going to try and fit it into like a couple yeah. of minutes but uh yeah there's all kinds of different factors that come into play and there is rarely a kind of one size fits all type explanation so in the case of ghosts um, amongst other possible factors that may come into play. Um, first off, I think a lot of people, when, when, when you hear the word ghost, you tend to think of a kind of full-form apparition, you know, something appearing through the wall and walking across the room and disappearing through the other wall or something like that. That's rare. It does happen, but it's quite, that is quite rare. More often, you're going to be talking about kind of much more um, subtle anomalous sensations. It's like going into a room and feeling there's a, a presence. There's, there's something in the room. Even though you can't see or hear anything, you just feel as if there's something in the room with you. Um, or a cold shiver down the spine or you know dizziness or, or hearing strange noises. It's all that kind of stuff much more often. Um, now, so again, we know that just by the power of suggestion, people people can be spooked just by kind of telling them, oh, this, 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 this house is haunted. You know, you go in and your mental set changes. You're, you're suddenly any creak takes on greater significance. You might not have even noticed that creak if you hadn't been in that mental state. Um, so there's those kind of factors that come into play. But also, I think kind of in, in the more kind of um, scarier situations, you might have things like um, hallucinatory experiences. I mentioned in passing sleep paralysis. Um, 
And sleep paralysis is is kind of has been kind of quite a focus of our research over recent years. Um, in its most basic form, it's you're kind of half awake, half asleep. You realise you can't move, um, and it's a bit disconcerting, but it's not really a big deal. You know, you kind of hmm, that was a bit weird, and get on with your day. Um, but it can be associated with other symptoms that may may absolutely terrifying. So you may you might get a very 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 strong sense of presence you're just sure that you can't move and you're sure there's this evil entity in the room somewhere even worse perhaps you might actually see and hear stuff halluc- you know, hallucinations so um, you might kind of see um, demons or monstrous figures kind of coming towards you or, or even sitting on you um, you might hear voices or um, mechanical noises footsteps you might see lights moving around the room. You might um, get tactile hallucinations. So, you, know, you get the whole range of possible hallucinations. And it can be absolutely terrifying because you can see you're in your bedroom. You know you're in your bedroom. You feel as though you're fully awake. And all this weird stuff is going on. You know? Now, um, as I say, it's, it's, it's a surprisingly common experience. And a lot of people who have it never tell anyone because... They fear, with some justification, that if they mention it to someone, people think, you, 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 you're crazy, you need to go and see a psychiatrist, you know. Uh, and sometimes, sadly, even when they go and see their GP, they get that kind of response. Whereas, you know, if you just bother to even Google it, there's, you, can, you can find out there's a whole scientific literature, you know, we'd, we have a general understanding of what's going on when people experience it. So those kinds of experiences, which will understandably freak anyone out, and particularly if you already believe in ghosts, you know, if you've already got that belief and then that happens, it's the logical explanation. Um, but you might also get situations where it's just weird stuff starts happening or in your house. The objects get moved and you can't figure out how they're being moved and so on. Um, when I'm doing talks on this stuff, one of my favourite examples, there's just something that happened probably a couple of years back now. It was in the uh, UK press. Of a, of a guy who had a um, little workshop, little to, little tool shed where he'd go and tinker about during the day. And he would generally kind of leave his workbench a bit messy, leave a lot of things out. He'd lock up, he'd go to bed, he'd come back the next day, open up, and everything had been put away. And he could not figure out what was going on. And, you know, it was almost like this kind of anti-poltergeist, one that kind of tidies up rather than throwing <laughs> stuff around, you know. Yeah. Um, and then with the help of a neighbour... They set up a video camera to figure out what was going on, and it was a little mouse. <laughs> now, wow. you would not believe that. The video is on YouTube. You can check it out. Um, and basically, you know, this little mouse would come out, and it would just pick up all these bits and pieces and put them back in the box. Now, if I, as a sceptic, had put that forward as an explanation, I would mm. understand we'd been laughed out of the room, you know? Uh, but we know that's what it was. Now, as I say, so just because you can't think of an explanation doesn't mean there isn't one. You know, just because you can't think of a non-paranormal explanation does not mean necessarily there isn't one. There can be all kinds of obscure things going on. So that's another kind of way with respect to ghosts. The <laughs> the, the short short version of why of, of aliens, and I'm, and I'm particularly interested in kind of alien abduction claims. Uh, I think that the most plausible explanation there is that we're dealing with false memories false memories that have arisen i think very often it's the case and again bear in mind what i said there's no one size fits all this explanation will not apply to every single case that you come across but i think it applies to a lot um there'll be something 
there's kind of two stages in my view. Something that gives people the suspicion that maybe they've been, you know, they've had some sort of alien contact, and then a second phase where they feel that's been confirmed. And so, quite commonly, it will be an episode of sleep paralysis or more than one episode of sleep paralysis. Because if you read the UFO literature, you'll find that a lot of self-appointed ufologists will kind of basically say, "Well, have you ever woken up in the night and you?" had a strong sense of presence and you couldn't move and um, there were lights moving around the room, whatever, etc., etc. you know. In other words, that's for me, it's a sleep paralysis, you know. But for them, they believe that when the aliens abduct you, they can wipe your memory of the, ex- of the episode. But for some reason, they can't wipe your memory of that very early bit where you're just lying there in bed and all this weird stuff's happening. And so the idea, but I mean, if you've been having those experiences and you didn't have an explanation because you've never heard of sleep paralysis, you might think, my God, that's what's been happening to me. Now, the next step then is to try and recover those memories of having been abducted by aliens. And you might be tempted to go and see a hypnotherapist under the misguided belief that hypnosis provides this kind of tool to unlock hidden or repressed memories. Um, And in fact, you know, what you do, you end up with a kind of, uh, narrative with all the associated imagery based on your expectations, fragments of real memories, things you've seen in films, read in books and so on, all woven together and it feels very, very real. Um, and that's very often how people can end up becoming convinced that they've been abducted by aliens. I mean, there are, I've come across people who, um, you know, who claim that they've been abducted by aliens and I've said, well, go and tell me about it. And they, they describe a kind of typical episode of sleep paralysis. And I go, well, yeah, okay, where were the aliens? You didn't mention any aliens. Said, oh no, they've wiped my memory for that. But you know, but all the other things. Yeah. So you can even believe you've been abducted by aliens, even if you can't remember it, because you buy into this notion that they can wipe your memory. Um, so again, um, that's that's what I think provides a plausible explanation for many many cases. As I say, there are other explanations, there are other factors that come in, but I think that goes a long way. I've just actually been reminded to ask you about someone because I've seen a book on your your bookcase of uh, Darren Brown. Oh yeah, um, I mean yeah, I'm a big fan of him. And, uh, yeah, likewise, I am a big fan, even though I do get the occasional digging at him. I must admit. Okay, okay. Uh, so, I mean, he's. I mean, he's. It feels like interesting for a few ways because he's obviously done a few shows where he he debunks supposedly kind of paranormal phenomena like psychics but he's interesting right because at the same time he he incorporates some of their techniques like cold reading to give the appearance he's doing um you know kind of purely like really smart psychological stuff but he's honest about it because he never claims to be psychic well, stuff like that's where that. we, that's where we okay. might differ you okay. see because uh, yeah, what do you, yeah, what do you make mean, of i think i think when darren is doing his stuff particularly I, remember, I can think of three documentaries in particular mm. where i was actually providing a lot of input which I didn't get credited for, thanks, Darren. Um, where you advised because, on the show? You worked, I wasn't you on the show, no. no but no. somebody, somebody who was working on it, who was a very close friend of mine, and wanted me to be involved, but couldn't persuade them to, uh, you know, basically kind of get. get me, I wouldn't have been quite happy with that, to be honest. That was that's fine. It's that yeah. So they they went for this uh, this 
<laughs> they went. They they use Richard Wiseman, who is a very good friend of mine, and, and you know I was going to be kind of uh, facetious about him there because I mean yeah, I'm I'm basically the kind of cut price version of Richard. <laughs> uh, but um, you know Richard's got a higher profile; he's more famous. So so they, they they kind of used him in one of the documentaries. But I provided all my lecture notes and so on through this through this friend of mine, and I'd have been quite happy with just a little credit at the end, and I didn't even get that. But there you go. Sorry, <gasps> I'm not bitter. <laughs> um, no, I am a bit, and I'm a big fan of Darren because I've got a lot I've got a lot of friends now these days who are conjurers um, and they all really really rate Darren Brown you know and I think he is genuinely innovative and creative and he's done all these amazing things but where, where where I would take issue with what you were saying is on those kind of documentaries where he's kind of debunking the paranormal stuff typically the explanations that he gives are absolutely 100% accurate but there are other times when he's talking about his own tricks where the explanation he gives is complete bullshit, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I kind of I, yeah, the the friends of mine who are conjurers say, well, look, he's he's a conjurer, he's a profession, he's, he's, he's a professional liar. That's what they, that's what we do, that's what he does, you know. But I think I think it gets a bit muddy when you appear to be taking off your conjurer's hat or your mentalist hat, and you now kind of say, yeah, now this is the science behind it. When I know for a fact that's not the science behind it, because if that if the, that if that science existed, I would know about it because I'm really interested in this stuff, and it's not there. What he's actually doing is he's often kind of dressing up traditional magic effects in this kind of psychological science costume. Because let's face it, if you really could tell that somebody went to Yarmouth for the holidays in 1987 just by the way that they raised their left eyebrow, that would be as impressive as reading their mind, you know. And it's just bullshit. You can't do it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I and, and I think, to, to be fair to Darren Brown, he's, he's, he's kind of, I think he's rode back a bit from some of those more extreme bullshit explanations. But it kind of means that, well, I don't know whenever I... I don't know when I can trust what you're saying, so I'll just ignore the lot of it you know I mean that because if you're going to be lying to me sometimes but with that same sincere <laughs> look on your face I don't know I can trust you you run a kind of regular meetup I think around here in Greenwich I do for, indeed for skeptics can you say a little bit about what that's about and, yeah and they, and that's that's they, Greenwich they, skeptics yeah. in the pub um which actually isn't in a pub anymore it's in a it's in a wine bar um but uh, we, we, we meet up once a month in Davies Wine Vaults near Greenwich Station. Um, and this dates back to, uh, I mean, the original branch of Skeptics in the pub, there used to be just one, uh, was in London. This goes back to kind of my very kind of early days of getting interested in scepticism. I, was, I probably started going to those meetings quite early on. Um, and the, back in the day, it would typically be maybe 30, 40 people turning up. Um, and the format's always the same. It's kind of a speaker, just comes along, gives a talk, then there's a break, and uh, we can go and get another drink, and then there's a and a and then people just generally socialise. And, and it worked very well for many years. And then suddenly it seemed to get really, really popular. Around about ooh, 2008, something like that. Um, and that with that original branch... Suddenly, they were getting kind of you know hun- literally hundreds of people turning up, two maybe two or three hundred. So finding a venue oh, yeah. was getting quite quite tricky. Mm. Um, and then other branches started to open up up and down the country. So now you've you know you've got there's some branches that are very very active: Merseyside skeptics, Manchester skeptics, Edinburgh skeptics. Um, others that kind of start and then stop and then start again. You know. Anyway, I long story short. <laughs> 
ish <laughs> i decided to uh, i was i was getting too lazy to even be bothered to go into central london um and so i thought well i'll open it i'll open one up around the corner from me then and then i can just kind of you know two minutes to get home um and so i did and it was really easy because i mean by that time you know this would be about 2013 i kind of knew so many people in the area and also the uh, topics, whereas originally it was very much focused on kind of paranormal type topics, which is still my main interest, but it's broadened beyond that now. And so pretty much it's it's just get somebody to come along and talk about something interesting. If there's a sceptical angle to it, then great, but there doesn't have to be. Um, I mean, the last speaker we had, for example, is a, is a, is a friend of mine who's a, um, a lucid dreamer and he gave us a fantastic talk on lucid dreaming you know so we do tend to because it's me organizing it we get a lot of psychologists but we get other types of scientists we get comedians um, actors cartoonists we've had all kinds of people um, and it's gone beyond just the paranormal so people can talk about kind of politics religion controversial scientific claims etc etc I mean, final question is, yeah, what plans have you got for the future? I think you mentioned a, a new book's coming out. Any Anything interesting to share? Yep. Well, that's, again, I mean, you know, I know it's a cliche. I know everybody says it, but since retiring, you kind of think, how did I ever have time for a full-time job, you know? Um, finally, it did give me the time to, I've almost finished writing the book. I've just got to write the epilogue. I know what I want to write now. Uh, I think I've got yeah I think I've got some nice ideas to put in that final epilogue with the final epilogue being on the on the limits of scepticism so I think that'll be quite a nice thing to end on mm. uh, but the book is called um, the science of weird shit that's the main title uh, which started off as a joke I was originally going to call it why weird stuff matters going back to what we talked about earlier where mm. it's often treated as being kind of quite interesting and entertaining but not not to be taken seriously, whereas I'm saying, no, actually, you know, we should take these things seriously. We can learn a lot from it. Um, but just jokingly to a few people, I said, uh, oh, I might just call it a science of weird shit. And everybody without exception said, I'd buy that. <laughs> so, right, that's the title. <laughs> um, and I don't want it to come across as being dismissive of these kinds of experiences and beliefs, because I'm aware that that's a potential risk. And I explicitly say that is not my aim but you know but i think it gets across there is you know it's not even just paranormal stuff it's anything that's weird we're interested in it you know um so yeah i've got to get that final epilogue written and then that's it it'll be coming out in about a year's time uh from mit press um and just general i mean then i'll kind of think about what my next project will be i've got a few ideas but i've not i mean in terms of writing but yeah doing um uh, talks, um, I mean, media stuff comes along every now and then. Um, I've uh, kind of thinking about should I should I join the podcast? <laughs> should I should we set up our own podcast? I mean, I think you know, there's, there's there's certainly people I know who'd be happy to collaborate on that, and I think that could be fun. So, uh, yeah, we will see. I mean, I I don't think I'll probably end up being any less busy one way or another. Sounds great. I love the title of the book and look forward to, to reading it. Chris, thanks great. a lot for speaking today. Great to, great My to chat. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you enjoyed the Human Podcast, please consider subscribing. I hope to see you soon.